Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright, and I'm here to document the further adventures of the Blue Lens Flare. Today we are talking about Minute 61, which begins with Cap sneaking into the factory floor and ends with Dum Dum Dugan's casually racist question. Joining us on the show today, it's a blast from the past. Matthew Fox from last season looking at Thor back in the house. Hello, Matthew. Hey, good to be back here. Glad to have you. I thought you'd quit on Marvel, Matthew. <laughs> what a relief. I, I still love Marvel, and you still keep picking me for movies that I don't really like. So we'll have a lot of fun with this one. Well, this will be great then. Uh, we are uh, we are finally uh, cresting the one-hour mark, moving into minute 61. We are looking at a moment here as Steve, uh, you know, he's now sneaking into the factory floor here, kind of creeping around, moving past boxes of these old explosives, seeing all the new bombs, all this good stuff. Let's start with Steve, though. Steve Rogers, Captain America. What do you think of the way the character is portrayed in this film uh, up to this point, uh, Matthew? And uh, and also, like, what do you think of what they've done with kind of this outfit look for him? I'll try to keep this brief. This is kind of my overall thoughts on on, on the captain in this movie and, and beyond, because I, I made a joke about not liking this movie, and that's not entirely true. To me, this movie is a great example of how much context matters, because the first time I, I, I wasn't interested when this movie came out, the character just seemed rah-rah patriotism, not my thing. I went and I didn't, I didn't read the comics. I know, horrible sinner. Um, <laughs> I, I I watched the Avengers movie and I was now very curious about Captain America. Went back and watched the movie and was like, okay, he's the rah-rah America guy. That's fine. Then as, as the character developed more and more, I came to realize, okay, this isn't a standalone story. This is the first chapter. This is that we have to establish that he is rah-rah America, but he's rah-rah the American values of, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't let people be bullies and stand up for what's right. Values that in the MCU the, and, and in our own world are, are not always lived up to. And so I feel like this movie makes his turns in movies like Civil War and, and, and all the rest of them uh, and uh, Winter Soldier where he has to start questioning the people above him and, and, and asking some of those harder questions much more powerful. So I feel like I, I – if it was just this, I would not like this character very much. I, I would like him a lot more than Surfer Cap. Who we talked about a couple months ago. Um, oh, yes. That was a highlight of your Marvel podcasting career, I think, is what you meant to say. Thank you, thank talking you. I, surfer, I put that up artists. there with the um, funny thing happened on the way to the forum song, right. um, <laughs> which I apologize anyone have to go back and listen to because I don't know what I'm talking about. But yeah, I, I am. So yeah, in terms of his costume, I'm I'm not the most visually attuned of people. I do like though that it looks kind of ridiculous. It looks like. What someone in the 1940s would sew together, you know, um, and it, it does make the later uniforms he gets. I don't like that he kind. Of, they kind of go the Zack Snyder route of like let's dull all the colors and darken it a little bit um, in later stuff. But I do quite like this. It look it looks silly and, but it's it's corny and that I feel like is kind of the point. And that the the fact that the others look at him with just the sense of like what what are you doing, man, is. It's kind of nice, you know? It's that kind of like, you know, the person who just like, they always stop to help the old lady across the street, or they always make sure to tip the way everyone should. But, you know, the other people look at him and go, why are you still being the nice guy? It's corny, it's hokey, but it's the right thing to do. And I, I, I like that about this cap. 
and the costume works well in context of the theater or the the stage, the performances that he had been doing. And now it's so, yeah, I mean, putting the, the bomber jacket over it and the helmet and stuff, it's it's a fun way to kind of, as we've kind of talked about, it's very much a transitional look for him, you know, kind of going from the one to the other. Yeah. I do need to say, as someone who has now been a professional fundraiser for a lot of causes, selling bonds is a very important part of the war effort. <laughs> and I think the movie is wrong to completely denigrate that. I get it's not what he wants to do, but I just got to say, bonds buy bullets and bullets kill Nazis. So. <laughs> so so, it was good, Steve was doing. He wasn't just collecting scrap metal like Timmy. And even then, Timmy collecting scrap metal was still a value. It always scrap is a metal value. Builds tanks. It's just, it's just Steve's perception of it. And that's an interesting element of all of this is Steve views himself as somebody who should be doing more, um, but only thinks that it's really the work of, you know, the troops over there actually fighting the Nazis. That's the real work, collecting scrap metal, uh, performing at the USO shows to sell bonds. He doesn't view that as I mean, I guess he maybe he views it as important, but not the sort of thing he should be doing. Right. Well, it also shows kind of an immaturity in Cap, right? That he still has, like, we see Captain America as, like, this selfless uh, avatar of, you know, truth, justice, and honor. And yet, he's still, even here, holding the blue glow ammo clips, an immature sort of young man. And he has a lot of growing to do. And I think that's an important bit of awareness. And also, a great nod to the good work of the USO. Bonds by bullets. <laughs> well, and and some could say, you know, Steve got his most important, valuable training during the USO tour. That's right. where that's where he punches I Hitler mean, two over two hundred times. So, so many. So times. you're just like knocking off all the rants I wanted to go on to with this movie because. <laughs> We have a lot of talk in fandom these days about the Mary Sue characters and, oh, Ray never learned how to trait, you know, use a lightsaber or She-Hulk doesn't know how to fight. Can you show me when Steve Rogers learned to fire a gun? Yeah. Or oh, learned how to sneak yeah. into a building or learned how to throw a punch? I mean, he's good at taking a punch. The punch he throws in that first fight scene is awful. He doesn't know how to fight. There's no training montage. Yeah, All I'm yeah. saying is I don't think we need the training montage. We can assume it happens. But it just is – it's a little funny to me because there is that – if it's a female character, there's always the how did she learn to do this? We yeah. never get that with Cap. I don't think we think so about you it. But you don't think it's enough that we have the military montage with him? You know, he learns to run and, right. you know, knock down poles. <laughs> he doesn't learn how to do anything. <laughs> we see him fail on everything. We see him fail uh, a lot. Yeah, because yeah. – yeah. I mean, and the, the pole is the one good thing because that shows that he has a better kind of thinking than a lot of the other soldiers. He's good at mm -hmm. like, you know, nonlinear thinking, which is great. But, but he wasn't trained to do that there. He brought that to the scenario. Right? Sure. But that's not a military yeah. skill. No, no, exactly. No. Exactly. It's, well, and we've talked about this a bit over the various seasons and how in so many ways through these later Marvel films, the once a person becomes kind of the superhero, it seems like the fact that they've become the superhero means that they know how to be a superhero now. And it all kind of stems from us having had a montage of Tony as he's like learning and training to build the suits. Once he has done that, like we never need to see Rhodey learn how to use a suit, you know, like everything after Tony's training montage means pretty much 
all the rest of the heroes in the MCU now know how to handle their skills once they get it. It's, uh, yeah, it's a frustrating element. And I suppose it's just kind of a shorthand Marvel way of saying, you know what, once they're a superhero, they now essentially have internally gone through their own training montage. <laughs> it's it's nonsense, but yes. And that's the thing is, I don't mind it in these movies. I, I just want to point out, because like, Right now, we're talking. We have for the last twenty years, we've been at this point in fandom where, if it's a woman character, if it's a character of color, suddenly people care about that. And and I just like pointing out that because I think you put it perfectly. Like there is a reason why we don't get those training montages for most characters of any gender or of any background. And it it just, just I always like that point at the hypocrisy of that because it's just it's very funny to me. Like. The serum makes him super strong and super capable, but, you know, it doesn't give him five extra points for skills. It's just attributes. It's just, you know, plus four strength, plus four dexterity, plus eight stamina. Well, it also doesn't teach him how to, like, sneak around. And as we're going to talk about, not in in this minute, but later this week, um, you know, why is it that he now thinks he can handle everything by himself, you know, and it's it's right. definitely an interesting element with this character, and I, we'll certainly talk about it. Uh, and I will more, say yeah. in fairness, Hydra security is not so good that it makes me think you need the best sneaking skills. They apparently <laughs> think that having one guard on the level above the prisoners is enough, but, you know, fair enough. <laughs> I, yeah, I have a lot of questions about this because when we last saw this factory floor, now granted... There were there was a lot of work happening here. Um, so there were a lot of people now. I mean, there are a few guards we see as Steve kind of sneaks from like one, you know, one row of bombs to another. But they're all in the background. And as we've seen in, in this film and many, many other films, peripheral vision. Yeah, it's not really a thing. No, nobody can see anything if they're not looking directly at it. <laughs> Steve sneaks past people who probably would notice somebody moving. But it is what it is. Well, and it's triply frustrating right here because uh, these you would think these bombs and the blue glow ammo and all the things, this is what they're producing at this facility, right? Aren't these sort of the family jewels? Wouldn't they want to protect them more than, you know, the the average, uh, you know, manufacturing facility? It just feels significant that he has enough time to look at this. I, I totally agree there, but also... Maybe station one guard outside the cell with like 50 prisoners. Right. Do do a little more work there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, yeah, the whole thing, I mean, bef- before we get to the prison, just, you know, one other note about kind of the factory here is that we just, you know, a few minutes ago saw Schmidt tell Zola, you know, boost production by 60%, which makes me think we want this going, you know, 24 hours around the clock. I want people here working to really crank out more of this stuff. And now we're at this point where, you know, because Zola was just like, but the men aren't going to be be able to handle it. Schmidt's like, yeah, we can always get more men. And now it's like, okay, but but not tonight. Let's just put them all to bed tonight. They can rest up and we can right. do it all in the morning. It's, it's, it's weird to me that like, yeah, we're we're but we still do it nine to five. We, we're, we're not monsters. <laughs> just 60 percent more people in Europe the has much yeah. better worker conditions than the United States does. We know that they have better labor unions, better organizing laws, even for the worker slaves, the kidnap people. You know, yeah, right. yeah, I, I agree. It's ridiculous. I still respects that. Yeah, no, it's yeah, it, it's something. It is something for sure. Uh, I do want to just comment real quick. These these uh, so Pete, you mentioned this kind of this blue the tesseract 
um, internal components of the bomb that that Steve um, comes across. We had talked about, you know, are these part of the bombs? Are these part of like the turbines for the planes? Um, it is as it is in the script as it's a cluster of cartridges that go into these bombs. So it is definitely something for the bomb. And it is kind of cool to see like the bomb shells, the casings, the internal pieces of the bombs all kind of in these rows and everything uh, with serial numbers. Who knows what the coding means? But there is some interesting sort of serial numbering on them. Um, so I, I like that, again, they're setting up a, a world-building scope for us. We are seeing this massive factory there producing massive quantities of weapons that we haven't even seen them use yet. Like, we've only seen uh, the tank, we've seen guns and stuff. We haven't seen anything with these bombs. So it's it's interesting. We're getting some great setup for something that is going to be coming at some point later in the film. And so I kind of, I like that. I like seeing that. Um, but to that point, I also will have questions about um, Schmidt's plans later in the week. Um, but at this point, yes. Yeah, so, so Steve is sneaking around the factory, and he makes it to the prison. Uh, uh, Matthew, you've pointed out this multi-level prison, how you've got the guard up on top, just the sole guard uh, kind of uh, watching the prisoners up on top with, and all the prisoners in the cages down below. I will say one thing that I really like about this, and I wanted to get um, uh, the perspective from the two of you. Um, it's it's kind of this nice way to show Steve's arrival. And I, I I think this is a sort of moment that works well when you have Johnston directing. You see through from below, you see a guard through kind of the grate in the floor as he's walking. And then as he passes toward the other grate, you don't you just hear a noise and then he actually falls onto the grate. And kind of letting us know, oh, Steve has arrived. How does that play for the two of you as far as like the way that we see Steve arriving here and finding the prisoners finally? The important part here, because there is so much to complain about in terms of how it's how it's blocked, uh, is I have to shout out how fun and awesome the production design is. I love the two level design. I love the the soldiers that that looks like they are um, hanging down below this floor. I think the only thing that would make it better is if they actually had to, you know, climb out. Right. Because at this point they can they walk out the 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 giant gates on the lower level. I think it'd be really cool if there was just no escape other than up. Um, that that would make it, a, a, a to me, a better design, a more interesting design. But I love the the fact that it looks like they're hanging down below. I think that's very, very cool, uh, even though it's probably not the most efficient use of space for a prison, uh, having circular, like, cartons of, of prisoners hanging down. That is very cool. I also think the reveal of guards falling down, such an awesome sort of, uh, uh, you know, it's a Spielberg reveal, right? It just feels like this thing's going to happen and then you get to see why it happened. And uh, that I think is really great. I think it's really great. And then we get the, you know, Captain America still in his rube stage, you know, peeking his head over. Captain America. Right. I think that's just really neat. I think it's all really neat. I, I think that's a good way to put it. I I definitely was pretty stuck on the this makes no sense aspect. Yeah. But like the the one the charitable reading I can give of this is that this isn't a prison. This is a factory. And Schmidt is clearly not a person who wants to take prisoners. He's he's gonna kill everybody on the other side, he's gonna kill half the people on his own side. Like this is not a preserved life kind of person. And so I get the idea of like he's only taking prisoners because Zola's telling him that he needs more workers. 
So, okay, this whole place wasn't set up to hold prisoners, therefore it's not really designed and no one's thinking about it that way. I think I'm being very charitable to the director to say all that, but I think that's a, that's a way you can read it and that way it does make sense. And I I do especially think the idea of the, the way you said the soldiers dropping because I have to admit, I didn't see that the first time I saw this movie. I was only going to watch this, mo- this movie in detail that I noticed it. And I think that's somewhat intentional because I think like you're supposed to get some idea of what's happening, but you don't – it's off screen. And the reason I say that is because Captain America, part of the whole point is he's not the sneak around guy, really. He's supposed to be, you know, charge headfirst, you know, into the machine guns. Like I am Captain America. I am strong. I am powerful. And I think it's intentional that we – they don't want – they want to show you that he can sneak when he needs to. But he's not James Bond. He's not a super spy. He's a he's a not a secret agent. He's a super powerful, strong guy. And I right. so I think it's a really interesting directorial choice to show that happening. But like you don't actually see Steve do it. You don't see Steve sneak up on the guy and punch him or like knock him out or honestly what would probably be happened here is break his neck, which we don't want to see because he's our hero uh, and you're not supposed to kill people who don't know you're there yet. So I think it's just it, – it's a very interesting choice I think to make it happen but like just barely on screen. You it, you remind me of something. Back to the production design. I, I think that's a really astute point that this is a factory first because then looking at the circular uh, drop-in cages, it feels like r- repurposed from like – uh, some sort of canisters or silos that would have been there to hold something, right? Some sort of material that goes into the manufacturing process. I think, again, your charitable reading completely <laughs> intact. Like that makes the cages repurposed as cages make more sense to me. Yeah, there's really so little logic to it because, you know, if you're storing, I mean, or storing, if you're, if you're holding, it looks like maybe four soldiers per kind of uh, per section, you know, I mean, we only see the four in this particular unit. Um, That's not very efficient. It seems like if they just maybe caged off the whole thing, they could basically make a place that holds all of them and not have to worry about this strange way of kind of of managing the, the soldiers. It's it's a very odd structure that they have here. And uh, yeah, I'm not exactly sure. yeah, I, I I agree. I don't know really. I, I don't know how to read it as far as the intentions of any of this design. And I will also say, and here I'm annoyed at you two because you make me look at movies I don't really like and find hidden meanings in them that I didn't <laughs> expect to see. Damn. And we'll talk more about this in tomorrow's minute. But one of the things, the, the, the ideas that we've had about Schmidt from the beginning is he sees people as like, you know, he, he's not a Nazi and that he doesn't care about Jews or, 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 or Roma or anything like that. But he does have a very sort of Nazi idea of like there are the superior people and then all the inferior people. And he certainly thinks that these Americans are the inferior people. And so I can also see the idea that he would have so much contempt for them that the idea that they would try to escape or even be successful when he has all these great weapons is just so out of the realm of possibility that it's not worth taking precautions against. And we'll, we'll talk because I think he shows some of that in the next minute that we'll get to. But I, I think that's another way to maybe read into this, that, that it's just like, yeah, they just don't care. Yeah, and that's a good point. Like rest up, rest all the Hydra soldiers right now because one Hydra soldier with one of these Tesseract weapons can likely hold back the entire, you know, 
all, if there was a an uprising with of these prisoners in the cell area, like this person up above could probably handle it. You know, they're not going to at least per Schmidt, right? Yeah. So I, I think there's something to that as far as the the way that Schmidt sees all of this. Well, and it's important because, like, I think cementing the way he sees all this is that he's not shy about equipping everyone with the blue glow tesseract guns. Like, that's <laughs> yeah. that's what we're about to see is just a real horror scape of blue glow tesseract shots and uh, their sort of lack of restraint. Like, at this point, Schmidt's done being restrained. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And to your, uh, your comment at the beginning of the minute, Pete, yes. I mean, we're getting plenty of of lens flare with all of the blue glow. Every time we get the blue glow, we're getting more lens flare. So just outstanding. I say that in heavy quotes. Yeah, yeah. What did I say earlier about Snyder in, in uh, inspired ideas about the atmosphere, about the uniform? Well, <laughs> right, right. There it is. Um, question for the two of you. We're, we're slowly building the Howling Commando team here. We have Derek Luke as Gabe Jones here, who delivers a line to Steve. He's the one who asks, um, you know, who are you supposed to be? So we saw earlier in the film a, a soldier in the field reading one of the like that Captain America comic. Uh, so do we think that these troops don't know who Captain America is? Is there a reason that they or or is it or is it just like that context shock of seeing a person that they've seen, you know, selling war bonds in movie magazines, in films uh, suddenly showing up to save them is that is it more the context shock of like the fact that this person who has only been kind of an actor on screen or in comics is suddenly now standing before them? I, I think it's a little of both because I, I think some of it is the like, you know, all they're seeing is this newsreel footage and photos and stuff like that. And so they probably they, they probably don't actually believe that, like, he is the super soldier. They think it's just, you know, OK, that picture of him holding up the motorcycle. Yeah, Hollywood can do whatever. So I think there's some of that. I also think as the USO tour uh, uh, scene really helped to establish, a lot of them just aren't paying attention to this stuff back home. And they, and if they are, they don't care. Because they they kind of see him as like an insult. I mean, they have they have bought into that mentality. The mentality he has of the real fighting is like with the men and getting sweaty and shot. Uh, that they have that mentality even more so of like oh, this this guy's just wearing his Tinkerbell in the boots. And so I, I think that's the thing is like they probably heard about Captain America once or twice, made some jokes about it in the barracks, and then promptly forgot about it. This is, I think, a really important point and a really important reason Captain America uh, becomes successful as Captain America is that the first people to the first time these other soldiers meet him in the flesh, it, he immediately challenges perspe perceptions of Tinkerbell in the boots. Immediately they get to see him as a leader of soldiers, right? As a leader of people on the battlefield. That's what this escape represents. And that's why we're, we're going to see him achieve a greater degree of success almost immediately, I think, at least is the case that Johnson's building, that he is, uh, uh, he's earns the moniker of Captain America, even his, uh, you know, sort of radical rise from private to captain. It, it's, it becomes an earned thing. And, and that, I think, is so essential coming after Tony Stark, because if Tony was doing this, like the, what Cap does is he walks the walk without trying to talk the talk. He doesn't say, what do you mean? You haven't heard of me. I'm Captain America. Look what I'm about to do. 
which Tony Stark would absolutely do. You know, if, if it was Iron Man who came over and people were like, Iron Man, really? He'd be like, here, here's my business card. You, 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 you watch my YouTube video while I go stomp this, these Nazis for you. And I think the, the contrast there is really powerful that Captain America is not, he doesn't, he's not doing this because it bothers him that people call him, you know, Tinkerbell boots. He's doing it because he wants to save them. What they think of him is just utterly out of his head. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Let's talk a little bit about, um, so we have two people. So Gabe Jones and Fallsworth both uh, respond to Steve. Interestingly, in, in the movie, when Steve, uh, Gabe Jones says, who are you supposed to be? Steve says, I'm Captain America. And then Fallsworth says, uh, beg your pardon? Um, in the in the script, it's actually Dernier who says mad when, when he says, which actually makes me think that he at least had heard of Captain America. But funny little, funny little uh, side note there. Right. But um, we're going to slowly work through these uh, the IMDb game with these uh, these um, Howling Commandos over the course of the week when they when they each kind of have a moment. So we're going to start with uh, Gabe Jones. We did Dum Dum Dugan last week. Gabe Jones, Derek Luke. So uh, he's been in a number of films. But for the two of you, what would you say are the four films that IMDb says Derek Luke is known for? Any ideas? I'm awful with character names. Which one of the Commandos is he? Is he the one who says? Uh, who kind of expresses disdain at the idea that it's Captain America? No, he. Well, he says, "Who are you supposed to be?" Yeah, so he's the first one who speaks. Okay, we we've got we've got a group of there's a, there's an African American, there's the uh, the Frenchman, the British man, the the Asian American, and then Dum Dum Dugan, who's I guess the the Irish American. Mm-hmm. Wow, uh, I, Andy, this is a this is a really hard one. I don't have anything else on my. On the tip of my tongue for him. Besides this, I would say Law and Order because everyone's in Law and Order at some point or time. But <laughs> just, that's all I got. <laughs> just to throw it out there, he definitely has been in. Oh, what is the TV show that he did a lot of Empire? Um, gosh, he's been in a number of TV things like Trauma, uh, Empire, Rogue, The Americans, um, Thirteen Reasons Why, oh, The Purge, the Americans. Yeah, so he's done oh. a lot of TV, but. It's it's movies where he mostly is keeping busy. Um, and I will say the, the IMDb known for are four of his movies. The first one is where he came to be known, and that is when Denzel Washington cast him as Antoine Fisher in the film Antoine Fisher. Oh, for crying out loud. That is his uh, number one. Second is the basketball film that he did, Glory Road, where he is one of the... Uh, one of the players on the team there. Uh, third up is this film, Captain America, the First Avenger. Last but not least is Notorious, in which he plays Sean Puffy Combs. So, Okay. All right. That's, that was a long time ago. Notorious. <laughs> so those That's are not in heavy rotation. Not in heavy here. rotation, no. <laughs> uh, J.J. Field plays James Montgomery Fallsworth, uh, potentially known as Union Jack, even though it's never completely called out. But anyway, I don't know if either of you know his know him very much. He is, interestingly, he's born in Boulder, Colorado. Uh, so that's oh. that's interesting, Pete. Fancy. He's one of those character actors who, like, I know I've seen him deliver one or two funny lines in half a dozen things. Yeah. And with a gun to my head, I couldn't tell you what any of them are. Yeah, he's uh, a lot of TV, 29 credits, most recently in Lost in Space. Uh, he was the the new Lost in Space. But his IMDb known for are this film. He did Centurion, which was the, was that the Rome, the film of the Romans in, in England that Michael Fassbender was in, the uh, Neil Marshall film? Yeah, so he did that. He was in Austin Land, 
uh, I think that was the rom-com. And then he was in Professor, Mar- Professor Marston and the Wonder Women. Oh, who was that? That's the oh, first of any of the movies you've named yeah. that I've seen for either of these people. What? Uh, who did he play in that? He plays uh, Charles Guyette, if that helps. At yeah, all. I, I, like I have a vague memory of him in that movie. And so it's, it's a fantastic movie, by the way. But I've heard I've heard good things about that one. Um, most recently, he was in Ford v. Ferrari. Oh, oh, I yeah, saw that picture him yeah. in that. So uh, so those are the two from the Howling Commandos we're going to talk about today. Uh, Gabe Jones from the Howling Commandos. Um, he first appeared along with Dum Dum Dugan in the very first issue of Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos. Uh, so he has been around for a while. Fallsworth is actually not a member of the Howling Commandos. I guess they're kind of doing it here uh, just to kind of get you know a a wider swath of people in it. He actually in the comics is Union Jack. He's a British agent during World War II, created in the seventies as part of the Invaders. Um, they are a team of, of the heroes that actually included Captain America and Bucky. He first appeared in The Invaders number seven back in July 76, created by Roy Thomas and Frank Robbins. I, I guess they wanted to kind of, uh, you know, make a nod to The Invaders. So they, they included him here again. They don't call him Union Jack, but they kind of design his outfit to look like he's kind of got that uh, the flag on his shirt, kind of, or at least kind of the, the cross, the shape of the cross on his shirt. So. And I'll admit I'm surprised at that because if there's a move that has Stan Lee written all over it, it's we have an English character. Falstaff is a kind of English name that a lot of people know. Fallsworth. Well, that's my point. Is oh, Falstaff. I, I, oh, gotcha. I gotcha. To me, those sound similar enough. Sure, that it's, sure, sure. Like, it's a very Stanley thing to name the character that as a reference to Falstaff because that's a Shakespearean character people have heard of. So I'm kind of amazed that's not the case here. Sure. Oh, yeah. Interesting. That is a, it's a good point, actually. So anyway, I think that's uh, I think that's it. We kind of get to the end with, you know, Dum Dum Dugan being Dum Dum Dugan and saying something that's, you know, pretty crass. I suppose it reflects the the racist views of the time though but uh you know he seems to comment as they're as as you know they seem i don't know the way that it plays it seems like their little cage is the last one that steve unlocks and as they step out they see that there's all these there's a whole lot of troops uh kind of already gathered outside of the the cages where steve is and uh this is where dum dum dugan notices uh jim marita uh played by kenneth choi we'll talk about him in tomorrow's minute, a little bit more, and Dum Dum Dugan has a line that he says that uh, reflects his uh, his views of the time, which aren't that savory these days. But uh, yeah, sadly, still exist. Um, how does that play for you, as far as like Dum Dum Dugan and throwing this line in here? I think it is a heavy-handed moment, but incredibly needed because to me. One of the things that I think is really essential to Captain America is exactly this, that it's the – he stands for all Americans. He stands – I mean this is like – Jack. I mean Jack Kirby created this character because he wanted someone to punch Hitler before World War – before America had gotten into World War II. He is very much supposed to be a – like the whole idea of how like – the actual American ideals of racism and, and, and sexism and all this kind of stuff stands in opposition to the ideals that America claims to be in favor of, which, which I think there's some truth to. And Captain America is supposed to fight for those ideals. And like a lot of the early Captain America comics are about him kind of challenging like racism and, and anti-Semitism and things like that in people who are claiming to be part of America and like. And so to me, it's a heavy handed moment. And as is the sort of like, like you kind of, 
the Howling Commandos kind of checks off every box of of diversity, but I think it's needed because it is to me it's an essential part of the Captain America character is that he stands for all Americans. And as we'll we'll see in the next minute, the response is very much part of that same like, yeah, this guy's from Fresno. He's not a foreign and I don't think he would care if he wasn't, but the fact that Captain America wants to rescue him before even knowing if he's from Fresno or where he's from, it's like, hey, you're Americans. You you were captured fighting for America, so I care about you. You're all coming with me. That is a that is a nice bit of consistency across the entire the entire movie and Cap's role in the franchise. I don't like bullies. I don't care yeah. where they come from. Well, the inverse is also true. I think a lot of this is a is a. Um, something that we need for the Howling Commandos as a team themselves to show they, that, you know, they're recognizing their differences on the outside, but they're going to find their commonalities on the inside. And that's, I think, going to draw them together as they as we kind of continue watching them throughout the film. I mean, they become a team. They really do become kind of this group of people helping uh, on these missions. And I think that is a key element. And while here we may see that Dum Dum Dugan has some views of the world, we're going to find that actually, you know, he comes to respect uh, Marita and and not have issues with him and fight side by side with him. And so I think I think there's a key element to that as well that we're getting here with uh, re- reflecting with Dum Dum's character. And I think that's a really essential point that I hadn't thought of because because to me, again, here's my like, you know, selling war bonds matters to the war. Like one person punching, no matter how good they are at punching and throwing a shield, is not going to defeat an army. It's just not how it works. And I think one of the things we've seen over the movies is, is that probably Cap's biggest superpower is inspiration. It's he can throw great punches, he can take a punch, he can throw a shield, but he's the one who can bring the team together. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing is that the Howling Commandos become a team because of Cap. And because Cap sees the goodness in all of them, they can all see it in each other. And so, yeah, again, maybe I have to give Johnson more credit here or maybe I'm just headcanoning like crazy. But either way, (laughs) I think that scene is a very essential part of what what makes Cap Cap. You see what's happening here, Andy? Matthew's going to be an unabashed fan of this movie. At the end <laughs> Five of the minutes. Well, more what I see happening is Andy keeps trying to end the episode and I keep going into tangents <laughs> as predicted. <laughs> but, uh, but that is the end of our minute. So we will be back tomorrow to kind of find out uh, what Marita says in his reply. We've kind of already uh, said it, but we will talk more about the response that he has for Dum Dum Dugan. Uh, Matthew, tell everybody what you're up to, where they can tune into you now that you're uh, done with Thor and you've washed your <laughs> hands of that that season. <laughs> no, I, I got to say, I'm not done with Thor. Um, I wound up actually, I don't know if you've seen the, the most recent movie. Uh, well, actually, Andy, I know you and I did an episode yeah. on Thor for right, my own right, podcast. Yeah. And then after that, um, there's a rabbi who's a fantastic uh, commentator. He goes by Pop Culture Rabbi on TikTok. He and I did an episode on the theodicy of Thor and the mm. theology of trying to kill God. So, yeah, you you all have put the Thor needle in me, and it's gone pretty <laughs> deep. And I'm I'm on the wagon now. I'm Excellent. off the wagon. Um, but yeah, all the, I'm talking about podcasting. All the podcasting I do can be found at theethicalpanda.com. Uh, I have two podcasts. One of them is all about superhero ethics. We talk about all kind of questions like that. Um, you know, everything from like, you know, p- what does killing gods mean in the MCU to uh, we did an episode on the concept of the frontier in American history and how Star Trek sort of interfaces with that and the problems with that and the good parts of that and all that. Um, and then my other podcast is called Star Wars Universe Podcast. Uh, and over there, 
as you can imagine, we do coverage of Star Wars stuff, and we talk, sometimes we'll get into more philosophical stuff, but we also do episode-by-episode coverage. And by the time this goes out, I think we'll probably be deep into our weekly episode coverage of Andor, a show that I'm really excited for, especially because it's going to be about fun. kind of, you know, that idea that, that war is a lot messier than you want to think it is, even when it's for the best of causes. Um, and so you can check all those out on the Star Wars Universe podcast, and we're recording our episode. We're live streaming the recording of our episodes every Wednesday night at 7.30 p.m. Central Time. Uh, so 8.30 Eastern, uh, 5.30 Pacific, Mountain, Kick Rocks, because there are rocks there. Uh, I love you, Mountain Time. I just make jokes about you because I never have a guest who's from the Mountain Time. Um, <laughs> but anyway, so all that is to say, go to theethicalpanda.com. You'll find all the podcasts. Go to twitch.tv slash zenmadman. Uh, Zen Madman is Paul, my frequent podcast host and, and partner uh, in podcasting. And so his Twitch stream is where we do all that. And I just said that all very fast, so hopefully it'll be in the show notes for anyone who's not from New York City and can't understand why I'm speaking so fast to find it, <laughs> theethicalpanda.com. And you can find me, The Ethical Panda, on TikTok and Twitter and Facebook. <gasps> and <laughs> you know, we've, got, we've got four more minutes, right? <laughs> <laughs> We'll just we'll just cut that into five pieces. We'll have a little yeah, bit of that. You know, listen, you're gonna have some listeners who are like, "Oh God, the social justice guy is back, and they're doing all the social justice rants." They're gonna turn off the next four minutes, so I had to get it all in. There get it go. all there in, go, right? Right. All right. Well, we will be back tomorrow to find out what uh, Jim Marita has to say to Dum Dum Dugan and talk more about everything going on in minute sixty two. So uh, that's it for today. Thanks as always, Pete. Thank you, Andy, and I love you, Greenwich. Meantime. Until next time, true believers. Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega. And this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. <laughs>